This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. What long-term impact will the Durban Amendment to Dodd-Frank have on debit interchange and investments card issuers make in fraud prevention? And how are emerging and current global and domestic fraud threats impacting today's financial institutions? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. This is the second part of a two-part interview with Bill Isaac, who served as chairman of the FDIC in the 1980s and the author of Senseless Panic, How Washington Failed America. Isaac, now the Senior Managing Director and Global Head of Financial Institutions for FTI Consulting, says the international political climate is having an impact on everything institutions do and will continue to have an effect on the global financial crisis. I want to talk a little bit about some of this regulatory scrutiny that's overshadowing today's financial market. And a lot of it does relate to fraud and the need for banking institutions to do better jobs of detecting and curbing fraud losses. Now, when we look at it from that perspective, Investments in stronger fraud prevention and detection would complement the need to trim budgets and comply with new and emerging regulatory mandates. How seriously are regulators, Bill, in your opinion, taking some of these cyber threat issues? And when we talk about Durban, of course, you know, we're looking at reducing debit fraud. um, But as you've rightly noted, perhaps legislation itself is flawed. I think you have two different issues in there, if, if I understand your question. One is is the issue of fraud, uh, and that's that's a serious problem, uh, in uh, particularly in the credit card arena. Uh, there's a there's a lot of fraud that goes on uh, continually, and companies like American Express and others who are in that business spend a lot of money on fraud prevention, and 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 they do that because the fraud is costing them so much money. I mean, it's a lot. It's staggering how much, how much the fraud losses are, and so and in, it's hard to overinvest in fraud prevention if you're running a a, a big consumer financial company, a retail banking company. So I think that that spending will con, uh, will continue if if the banks are smart and they are, uh, and I think the regulators will encourage that. The other is the threats from cyberspace. And I, I, I understand that that can be a fraud threat, but it, it can also be more than that. It can be extremely disruptive uh, to a business. So that that is a very very serious threat, and it's not it's not just a fraud threat. It's a threat to the integrity of of the the, the bank's records, for example. People tap in and get information about Bill Isaac and others who do business with banks. So that is a very very high priority for banks to con- to uh, to protect against that those kinds of threats. And it's a very high priority for the regulators that banks should uh, protect against those threats. Sure, that makes sense. I can tell you I was on the board of, a, of, of, a, of an American Express Bank for a number of years, and, and I always viewed, as a board member, I always viewed that as one of the most serious issues facing the company, that maintaining the privacy of our customer information, um, that if if... If customers don't believe you're going to keep their, you're going to be able to keep their information private, they're not going to do business with you. It's as simple as that. So it really is a threat to the franchise if you don't get that one right, and you really have to spend whatever it takes to to get it right. And then what about other less high-tech threats, such as counterfeit check fraud and mortgage fraud? We've touched a little bit on the housing crisis. 
you know, both of these types of fraud, check fraud and mortgage fraud, continue to drain millions and billions of dollars from the financial sector annually. Yet institutions seem reluctant to make investments in technology that can adequately address those types of problems. Why is that? Well, I, I don't know that I, I can verify the premise of your question, that, that, that firms are, are reluctant to spend money in these areas. Um, I, I would tell you that any area that's costing an institution a lot of money, they are going to spend the money to, to fix the problem once the problem becomes unbearable uh, from a cost point of view. So that that I, I believe that if, if fraud losses in those areas are, are really uh, a big issue, then I, I believe the money will be invested to, to try to prevent those, those fraud losses. You're right, there was a lot of fraud in this last go-round uh, that led to the mortgage crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the government has really dropped the ball there. Uh, it seems to me that the, that, that the FBI and the Justice Department ought to be looking, and, and the banking agencies, ought to be looking a lot more aggressively about bringing criminal prosecutions. I know that when I was chairman of the FDIC during the 1980s, we took it very seriously when we found somebody was uh, had, had defrauded a bank. Uh, and you saw a lot of civil suits from the FDIC against the officers and directors of banks that failed. And I don't see anywhere near the activity this time around. Now, of course, we had bigger problems in the 80s. We had 3,000 bank and thrift failures during the 1980s compared to 400 this time. So the the, the numbers would be higher. But I, I don't even think the numbers uh, this time around are, are proportional. I, 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 I almost don't see prosecutions. And uh, they're very hard to find. And I think that's a mistake. I think... Uh, the best the best prevention against fraud is when you find it, you really drop the hammer on people. And why do you think that? Why do you think that we're seeing fewer prosecutions? I don't know. I, I, it may be that that because the budget resources are so stretched, we run into these big deficits that nobody wants to commit the resources to it. Uh, that could be. Uh, although I would say that the FDIC's civil litigation in the 1980s, I'm sure more than paid for itself. A lot of money was recovered in those civil suits, uh, and and I, um, I I think a lot more money was recovered than was spent in prosecuting those suits. I want to go back for a moment, Bill, and talk a little bit about some of the international impacts that we're seeing on the global economy. And I wanted to ask about international regulatory mandates, such as the UK Bribery Act. What kind of impact are these regulatory mandates having on U.S. institutions? Probably not much on on most U.S. institutions, but but the global institutions have to develop systems to be compliant with all of the rules around the, the world. And generally speaking, what that means as a practical matter is you take the toughest rules and you comply with them. It's it's not feasible if if you're operating in, in let's say in 50 different countries, it's not feasible to have a system for each of the 50 countries. So on each issue, you gotta you got to look at it and say, who has the toughest rules? And generally speaking, that's going to be the U.K. or the U.S. Most of the large banks comply with the best practices as established by, let's say, the U.S. or the U.K. or, or other, you know, other countries that have, that have strong regulatory regimes. Those banks are, are affected by what, what the rules are around the globe because they have to comply with those rules. The community banks, they don't, they don't care what's going on in, in Germany or France because that doesn't affect them. 
And what about the global political state? How do you see political reform taking places in different parts of the world impacting some of these global financial institutions? I think Europe is in, in seems to be in as big a mess right now politically as as the U.S., which is you know, takes some some <laughs> doing. Um, and it's, it's actually worse because at least we only have one federal government, um, and in Europe you've got. You know, while you have a, a European Union, it's it's there really hasn't, and it's a European Economic Union. It hasn't been a European political union. There's still sovereign countries that have a, a strong voice in whatever happens. So that it, it's a lot more difficult for the Europeans to get their act together. Here, our problem is we've got Republicans and Democrats, and we've got two parties that are really at odds right now with a big election coming next year, and. Neither party wants to give the other party uh, any kind of advantage in that election. It's a very important election. Uh, so that's that's what's disabling us right now politically. And uh, in in Europe, it's 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 a bunch of sovereign countries that are not on the same page, and and they have no mechanism for resolving their disputes other than by voluntary arbitration, and and uh, that's not working very well. So. Uh, we've got we've got serious political problems in Europe and the U.S., and that's that's why Europe and the U.S. are not doing very well economically. Yeah, exactly, because all of that does impact the economy. And before we close, Bill, I just wanted to ask, what final thoughts would you like to leave our audience with as it relates to some of the topics that we've discussed generally? I guess the final thought I would like to leave is that there is nothing wrong with the U.S. that we can't fix, and and fix rather easily in terms of we know what needs to be done. We truly do. The the, the, the Simpson-Bowles Fiscal Commission gave us the roadmap, $3 in spending cuts for every dollar of, of increased revenue and, the, and a flatter tax, fewer deductions, lower tax rates, fewer deductions. Um, we, they've given us the roadmap. We just got to muster the political will to put it together. We've been through civil war, we've been through a couple world wars, and, and we've been through a lot of financial panics and, and uh, droughts and, and so forth in this country. We've had a, uh, a, lot of, a lot of major, major problems, more serious than anything we're facing today, and harder to fix than what we're facing today. And what's lacking today is the political leadership and will to get it done. And I hope that this election in 2012, and I don't mean this as a political statement, because it isn't, I mean a partisan statement, I, be, I hope this election in 2012, we really, the, the, the public really gives a mandate to our federal officials, fix the economy, get, and, and get this fiscal crisis under control. If, if that mandate comes out very strong in 2012, I think we have a, a, a really good future ahead of us, and I think the markets will start to soar. Bill, I want to thank you again for your time today. My pleasure. Again, we've just heard from Bill Isaac, a former head of the FDIC. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.